Welcome to Nuka in the Know, a podcast for healthcare providers in the HIV field. Today, we're releasing a special edition episode to talk about an exciting advancement in HIV medicine, the recent approval of a new injectable treatment for HIV infection called Cabinuva. From what I understand, this is a combination of two medications given as separate injections. With me, as always, is John Farragon. Okay, John, can you start us off by telling us some of the basics? What are these two medications? Yeah, so thanks, Mariana, for, for introducing uh, this topic. I think it's an important one. Um, and uh, these are basically uh, two medications that we're going to talk about today is a combination of cabotegavir, uh, which is an integrase strand transfer inhibitor, so an INSTE or an integrase inhibitor. And then there's a drug called rilpivirine, which has actually been around for a while in, in some of the combination products and also as a standalone. And that's a non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor. So we have a, an integrase inhibitor, so an INSTE and an NNR. RTI, two separate injections, but kind of packaged together um, um, that would be giving, given as, as a monthly uh, in, injection. So, so this new injectable combination is going to require a couple things. And I, and I think many providers who've been waiting for this are probably aware of some of this information. But most importantly, I think um, you do have to do uh, what we call an oral lead-in. So it means that we need to give um, uh, an oral medication for 28 days prior to starting the injectables. So according to uh, the FDA, they, they require people to be on uh, 28 days separately, uh, ropivirine, 25 milligrams. Um, and then um, there was uh, 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 an, um, a drug called Vocabria, which is the oral version of cabotegavir, which is dosed in 30 milligram tablets. So initially, this oral lead-in period will be done with these two medications for 28 days and then on a 28th day, you would actually um, start the injections. Now, some people, just to be clear, at least at this point, the, the vocabria, the cabotegavir the, the 30 milligram tablets is not available separately where you can just buy, just order that. So you can't just order cabotegavir. When you order the injectable, they actually, part of the whole process is that they ship you two 28-day um, bottles of both um, uh, ropivirine and, and um, the cabotegavir together. They have, they're in separate bottles, but they ship that out together for the patient, either to the, to the patient or to the clinic for pe people to start. So it's important to know that that oral eating is, is actually pretty, pretty important. And then on that 28th day, that's when the injectable drugs would actually be started once you've done, once you've done that 28th day or oral eating. Remember too, that ropivirine, because it, um, it does require a meal uh, taken together with a meal. You have to do, you have to take these with, with food during that 28 day period. So just so I understand, the lead-in is probably just to make sure people tolerate the new medicine. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. And then I think the concern is, is that you're giving somebody a long-acting injection. And it's probably more of a concern potentially for cabotegavir because that's well, that's the new drug, right? So, um, so basically, if there are side effects, you would know before giving somebody the long-acting injection that they've had at least 28 days of treatment and they've been okay. So once that lead-in is done, you know, what's next is that really... Um, some of you um, who follow this may know, but basically the, the, there's actually two doses of the injectable that needs to be used. So there's um, after the 28-day lead-in period, there's, there's kind of like a, uh, an injectable IM loading dose, right, um, which is uh, given intramuscular. So it's got to be given in, in the gluteal muscles. So it's given um, in, in people's butt, right, on each side. Um, now, usually it's going to be for the, for, the, for the loading dose, it's going to be three mils. 
of cabotegravir and three mils of rapivirine. So these are large volume IM injections and they're given in separate sites on opposite gluteal muscles. Or if you want to use one gluteal muscle, you can do it, but it has to be at least, at least two centimeters apart from, from, from each other. All right. And then once that loading IM injection is given, so the three mils of each drug, one month after that, you can, your subsequent dosing from then, from then on every month is actually two mils of each drug. You know, again, assuming that your adherence is good, and we can speak to that uh, misdosis in, in, in a few minutes. So to recap, oral, oral 28-day lead-in, then you, then you do the loading injections, which is three mils of each. And then a month later, you do the maintenance, two mils of each drug intramuscularly. And then you follow them every month. You give them, uh, you give them the two mils injections uh, every month. So it's only the, the first load is, is going to be the, the, the three mils. So technically, if you think about it from, a, from an ordering perspective as, as, a, as a provider, right, you technically need three prescriptions, one for the, for the, for the lead-in period, a prescription for the loading injection, then a prescription for the maintenance injection. And if you look at how these drugs are ordered, there's an order form that you can use that has boxes that you can check off that have all of these, all of these on there. So it's really important for people to be uh, be be aware of how that that dosing is done. So uh, you know who's going to be using this, right? So I think this is really a good option for people who have pill fatigue and are just wanting to do injections. And again, remember these studies; they told people knew they were going to get injections and people were willing to go into those studies. So there are, be, there are going to be some people who are looking into being on injectables, right? The only thing people should realize is that these are not for home injections. So this is going to be something that's going to be given, you know, to the patient to be given themselves at home. This is a, you know, this is a deep IM injection and really has to be given by healthcare professionals since they are, they are, they are given deep IM. So they will have to go somewhere every month to get their doses. And so while it's easier on some level, it may be more complex as well if you don't like going to appointments. But again, I think the, the point that taking daily pills would be eliminated may be, uh, may be desirable for, for some patients. And, and I think many of you who may be listening to this today um, have heard about some of this data, right? The ATLAS and the FLARE data, there's data in treatment naive patients and those have been on other regimens, some of these switch studies. And it really showed excellent efficacy over 90% of people in both scenarios either, either got undetectable or remained undetectable um, if, they, if they did this, uh, this, um, this injectable. The one thing I will say that's not in the FDA labeling is what we is the study called the Atlas 2M study, which is giving uh, these injections every other month. Um, and that's not currently in the label, but it may be a potentially option down the road if the FDA acts favorably on, uh, on, on some changes to the, to the labeling for, for Cabinuva. So it's really, I think, a good option for people who, who are, don't want to take pills and are willing to take uh, an intramuscular injection for, for HIV treatment. Okay. And can you talk a little bit about adverse events and drug interaction? Yeah. So it's always the important piece, right? The adverse drug reactions of new drugs and things that we have to think about. So it's a great question, Mariana. And I think the most important, I think, would obviously be the injection site reactions are, are, are the biggest concern. Uh, but also there were patients who, who actually um, uh, re reported um, some, some fever, fatigue, headache, musculoskeletal pain, nausea, sleep disorders, dizziness, rash. Again, it's a long laundry list, but I think these are very important points, especially in the HIV world where drug interactions tend tend to be complex. We have to be thinking about that. So, so one of the things that you have to remember is that a lot of the, some of the meds that I'm going to talk about um, really are, are pretty much avoided in a lot with a lot of the antiretroviral regimens. And one thing I will give you as, as a mnemonic to remember is, is one thing called copper. 
C-O-P-P-R. So, um, and sometimes I use copper IDS too. That's another one that I've used. Um, so the copper drugs are basically the, the, the anticonvulsants. So the carbamazepine, oxcarbazepine, phenobarbital, phenytoin. So th those are the COPP meds. The R stands for the rifamycin type drugs. So the antimicrobacterial is rifabutin, uh, rifampin, and rifapentine. Um, D stands for, if you use the IDS part of it, right? Um, it's dexamethasone uh, and then St. John's wort. And again, dexamethasone usually going to be on, you know, more than, a, more than a single dose treatment. One dose is fine, but beyond that, you really should be uh, not on a lot of these meds. And so the, these, these copper ID meds, this copper, however you want to say it, um, these are what we call inducers of, the, of, um, of a lot of our metabolic enzyme systems. And they usually will drop the levels of the components of Cabanuva, um, especially during the oral treatment, but also during the, the IM injection as well. So, and because ropivirine can, can also cause prolonged QT intervals. So some of the caution uh, with other drugs that cause QT prolongation should also be implemented as well. So I think the, the, the one thing that comes up quite a bit is um, ropivirine, as many of you may know, has to be taken um, uh, within an acidic environment. So anytime somebody's on a proton pump inhibitor, uh, especially during the lead-in period, you'd have to avoid proton pump inhibitors because ropivirine uh, less ropivirine would be would be absorbed when you're on PPI. But once the injections go on, or once the injections are started and the oral medications are, are not being used any longer, the PPI interaction is really not an issue uh, because you're using an, an IM, IM injection. So all the other antacid issues that come up with ropivirine, and even the antacid issues that sometimes come up with, with integrase-based regimens, these would not be problems once you switch to the injectable. But I want to make sure everybody knows the drugs that I covered earlier, the anticonvulsants, the antimicrobacterials, the glucocorticoids, um, and herbal products. So that copper, um, the I, I, IDS drugs, those are on the list, even if you're on the injectable um, uh, cabanuva as well, not just the oral medications, but the PPI interaction is a little bit different in the fact that it's only um, a problem for the oral lead-in period, but would not be an issue once you switch to um, the IM injection. So I hope that makes sense to people. All right, so what kinds of things do prescribers need to consider before prescribing these medications? And of course, folks taking these medications, are there factors like storing the medication or any immediate reactions folks should be thinking about? Yeah, so these are these are important issues. They, they, these drugs are refrigerated, all right? So that's one thing that, that you know, um, you know, it's not like it requires the cold storage that we talked about with the Pfizer vaccine, for example, but it does need to be refrigerated. So some, some, these are some of the practical pieces. So this is probably for providers, but it's also for probably some of the nurses who might be administering the drug um, uh, and other, other healthcare professionals as well. But the injections do not require further dilution. So the way they come to you in the 3 ml or 2 ml injection packages, you don't have to reconstitute them or further, further dilute them. They should be out of the fridge for about 15 minutes prior to injection allows them to warm up so you're not giving cold injections in, into people. Um, those can potentially be more, more painful. Each injection has got to be, as we mentioned before, separate gluteal injection sites, either on opposite sides or at least two centimeters apart during the same visit. Um, and the ventral gluteal site is recommended. And really, um, they're not recommended in any other anatomical site. So it's not, it's not um, a deltoid injection or anywhere else. It's, it's gluteal uh, injections. The one thing that is interesting is um, there is some some information in the label that talks about BMI. So if you have patients who um, have a BMI that's greater than 30, you might need a longer needle, um, maybe required for patients with higher BMI. So those, those are going to be some things that we're going to have to think about 
for needle length. And again, most of the nurses who do IM injections are probably aware of some of these little, little I, th I would say tricks of the trade, I think of giving an IM injection. The vials may be, uh, remain at room temperature up to six hours. If it's not used within six hours, the medication must be discarded. And also important to know is that if you look, if you look at the cavitegnomer vial, and again, I have not seen one, but apparently there's a brown tint to the glass. So it might actually look like it's, it looks like it's, it's brown, um, brown look to it, but that is probably the glass, not so much the, the medication. So don't be concerned if you see that. Each, each drug should be sh um, uh, shake each of the vials vigorously so that the suspensions look uniform before you inject. And then some small air, air bubbles are certainly expected and, and acceptable when you're drawing it up. So one of the things too, we try to tell people this, but you know, with most, most injections, once you've drawn it up, really should be should be administered as soon as possible. But the um, it can remain in the syringes for up to two hours. So hopefully, this would be planned out. You'd have the patient. You wouldn't even be opening the vials. I think till the patient is, was already in the waiting room, probably into a room, and then you would probably administer the drug pretty quickly. I doubt you'd probably have the drug sitting there for two hours. Now, having said that, you know, you may actually decide in your clinic, if you have 10 patients on Cabinuba, you might schedule them all on the same day between nine and 11. I don't know how this is going to happen, the logistics of how people will schedule their injections, but there may be a chance for this kind of to be kind of scheduled along the same times for, for multiple patients. So who knows how this will happen in real life, but most of the time I doubt the syringe is going to be sitting out for more than two hours, but if it is, and it's in the uh, and it's and it's in there. You can keep it in the syringe for two hours. Some of the injection reactions that were that happens. This one is important for pe people to be aware. There are these serious post injection reactions that that are very very rare. Um, and include dyspnea, so shortness of breath, agitation, cramping, flushing, sweating, oral numbness, and then less. Uh, and then sometimes you can maybe even potentially see some changes in blood pressure. This happens usually in less than one percent of subjects and usually resolves within a few minutes after the injections ha have been have been given. So because of these um, have because these injection site reactions have been reported or these types of reactions, it's really uh, important for us to observe the patient for about 10 minutes after the injection. So it's not just you know get the injection and go home. You really want to make sure people are are looked at and, and monitored for a little bit. Again, it may mean just having them sit in a chair in your office, but make sure somebody's at least checking in on them. So part of the reason why they think this may be happening is that when you give the IM injection, there may be actually some. Uh, some of the medication might actually be uh, partially be given IV by accident, like you know when you're when you're just be, by the nature of giving an injection, and that may be the reason why these injection site or these types of post injection reactions are actually happening. So, Marianne, these are the key points, right? So this is not everything. A lot of it is straightforward, I think, but these are really the key points to know. When you look in the labeling of the Cabinuva, there's a lot of this information is kind of listed out, I think, in a uh, in a systematic way. Uh, and I think these are some highlights of, of some of those some of those issues that, that I think we, we need to be aware of before we start administering this medication. Okay. Now, what happens if someone misses a dose? What do you do then? Yeah. So this is right. This is a, a big question. And if you've heard our our, our other um, our, our other if you if you've heard our other other podcasts on injectable prep, it's kind of the same story with cabotegavir. The concern here is when you have the combination, what happens if you miss the dose and, and what, what happens? So remember that these, these drugs are, um, are approved for every month use, right? So this is every single month. So if I, you remember um, a few minutes ago, I mentioned the Atlas 2M study, which actually gave the drug, allowed the drug to be given every two months. So some of this was actually done, I think, in Thoughts that if you miss one month, can you just start up on the maintenance, keep continuing the maintenance dose a month later, right? 
So if you, so if you, uh, if it's less than or equal to two months of time since your last injection, you just basically start the patient, continue them on the maintenance dose of the 400 and 600, which is the two ML injections, just the maintenance dose as soon as possible after they've, after they've missed that, that after they've gone beyond that one month period. All right. So again, if you, if you're within two months of your last injection, just continue the maintenance dose that, that you've been on uh, for, um, you know, for the, for the maintenance dose, the two ML injections in bulk. If you're beyond two months, you really need to reload the patient with the IM injection. So you, so you have to go back to the, that one time three ML um, of cabotegravir and three mils of ropivirine. And then a month later, you would continue the maintenance dose again of two mils and two mils every month. So hopefully that's clear. So it's really this two month issue. So if you're, if you're before two months, you can just you know schedule the maintenance dose you know as soon as possible. If it's beyond two months, you really have to reload them with that three ml in, in both um, of both drugs. Where I think this is interesting, I think this is helpful, is that if you are one of those clinics that's trying to line your patients up, where you want to say, I want to do my cabotegravir ropivirine injections on a Friday in the middle of the month, you might potentially be able to use some of this information and say, listen, if somebody's at four weeks, you know maybe we can push them to six weeks to kind of get them on a schedule where you're doing all the injectables on, a, on, a, on the same day or a similar time period. And again, those are some logistic things that aren't really in the label, but I think these are going to be the real life, I think, implications of how, how you're going to, how you're going to manage uh, giving these injections for, for some people. Something that, that makes sense. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, talking about getting these injections to people, something that comes to mind with all this is, will they be covered by insurance? Yeah, this is real early in the game, so we really don't know. I mean, as it, we, I think I've said this, but it was, it was approved in January of 2021. So now we're at the end of February, um, the day of this of this recording. So today, you know, it, most of some of the insurance haven't have have it approved. Some some are not. So early in the game, the thought is that it probably will be covered. Though the only question is, how does the clinic want to do it? So cl- some clinics will um, will have the medications, including the oral lead-in, shipped right to the clinic when the patient's there, or they'll ship it to the patient. But the injectable piece is really going to have to be shipped from a specialty pharmacy, either to the clinic or to the pharmacy. They won't be shipped directly to the patient. Um, I think most likely you're probably going to see a lot of this done shipped to the clinic or shipped to the pharmacy. And then um, somebody, somehow you manage getting that drug to the, to the clinic. So, um, or the place of, of, uh, of administration. So some places may choose the injection offsite, for example, in an infusion center, while this is not an infusion, that might be a way to do it where you could actually have people go sit in a chair for a period of time. They get the IM injections from the nurses there. And then, then they basically go home after they've been monitored for 15 minutes. But I think realistically, I think patients, most, I, I think most providers are probably going to do this in their, in their own clinic, uh, clinic setting, but regardless of how they do it, I think, you know, there's going to be some approval process for this. You're going to have to have insurance information. It's going to have to be approved. And then you're going to have to have to go through those steps like we would for any, any new medication. And Certainly, I think people are going to, you know, uh, be asking questions about, you know, do, you know, is the patient accepting injection drugs, uh, and you know, not accepting um, the use of an injectable antiretroviral therapy for treatment. I guess is the way to say that. Um, so these are some things I think we're going to have to have to think about and kind of manage and work through as 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 this drug uh, becomes more readily available. Yeah, um, folks will be hearing this episode around the middle of March, so hopefully we'll have some more information then. Um, any final thoughts as we wrap up, John? 
Yeah. Well, first of all, I th- well, again, thank you for for um, for hosting all of these podcasts. I think these have been have been good informations coming out. I think hopefully that people are listening to them and getting useful information. But I think as it relates to what we're talked about today, you know, the bottom line, you know, besides infubertide, which is if you remember T twenty, uh, Fusion, and even the IZ, IVs, idovidine, which we sometimes use for maternal child uh, prevention uh, tra- of transmission, and even ibuprofen, which is the the uh, the long the the infusion. Um, uh, injection. It really hasn't been an injectable in a while. I think this combination to be used in naives and also in switch patients really has some promise, especially in people who, first of all, are willing to switch to an IM injection or don't want to take pills anymore. But I think, you know, it has to be picked for the right patient as it relates to the FDA labeling. And I think we'll have to see how this works out in, in the future. But I think another new option, a different, a different way of giving antiretrovirals for, for naives and, and for maintenance therapy, which I think is um, it's going to be exciting for some patients who may be wanting to switch to uh, an injectable instead of taking pills on, on a regular basis. Thank you so much, John. We covered quite a bit today. Um, and I think it's so great that there is this new medication option out there that provides an alternative for folks who don't want to be taking pills anymore. And, you know, it's proven to be effective in managing and treating HIV um, we really hope you learned something new today to learn more about Nika ATC's work and our role in ending the HIV epidemic. Visit us at www.nikaatc.org. That's www.nekaatc.org. If you have questions or comments about anything that we covered today, or if you have suggestions for topics you'd like to hear us talk about, don't hesitate to email us at podcast at nikaatc.org. That's P-O-D. C-A-S-T at N-E-C-A-A-E-T-C dot org. Stay safe and we'll see you on Thursday for our next episode of Nika in the Know. This presentation is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.